Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. We would host these studio sales, like selling drinking glasses. Imagine like, um, you know, it's basically like a keg party, you know, like a college party because we're 23. And we would sell, you'd buy a drinking glass. Instead of the red cup, it's a $30 hand-blown glass. And that's how we paid, like, rent every month, you know? Yep, you get to take their glass home. And that's our rent check, right? So that was like, I mean, it was literally like, each month it was like, all right, we got to come up with this check next month. Like, how many people do you think will show up for a, a party? From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. What do glass blowing, luxury lighting, hospitality, and urban planning have in common? Well, Jackson Schwartz has managed to weave all of those passions into one very vibrant, very busy career. He was an artistic kid who fell in love with glassblowing at first flame when he was just a teenager. He traveled halfway around the world to learn the skill and returned to the Midwest to launch Hennepin Made, a glass-blown lighting company in Minneapolis that serves retailers like Room & Board, commercial clients, and high-end residential around the world. You'd think that would be enough to keep him busy, but Jackson is always thinking of the bigger picture. And so when it came time to build a larger manufacturing space for his company, Hennepin Made, he did so right near downtown Minneapolis in an area ripe for redevelopment. He not only expanded the glass business, he built a cafe and an event space and began working with the city on a new vision for the entire neighborhood. He's got the passion and the tenacity Now he's learning to balance it all in a way that keeps him sane and allows the business to grow. But this multitasking drive wouldn't surprise anyone who knew Jackson when he was a kid. I grew up in western Wisconsin outside of River Falls. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess as a kid, I was um, very curious. I spent a lot of time outside exploring and, you know, playing and Kind of, I always loved nature and the outdoors hmm. um, and loved creativity. So okay. I loved like, you know, building forts and making stuff and, you know, like projects with my dad or whatever. Yeah. What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I really didn't have any idea, I think, until probably my teenage years. I knew I, I really liked, liked art and, and craft. Mm-hmm. So... I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I like that. I like working with my is hands. Is that a job? Yeah, is that a job? <laughs> and I worked, you know, I was I was had jobs from a young age, so I worked like for as like a farm hand, mm. you know, like you know fixing fences or like you know doing yard work or maintenance or stuff like that. And I always liked kind of that physical nature work, mm-hmm. but then I needed something that stimulated my mind as well. Mm-hmm. And so art and craft was kind of the emergence of both those things. What was your first exposure to? Well, so. I had seen some blown glass and I was with my mom and 
I was, uh, you know, I was probably like, I bet I was 12 or 13 maybe. And it was really colorful and kind of wavy. And, you know, now it's like not my aesthetic taste whatsoever. Um, <laughs> but at the time I was like, whoa. Yeah. Because I was doing ceramics in, in high school and middle school. And so ceramics didn't have that kind of, um, you know, flair to it or that like kind of same flashiness or sure. shininess, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, wow, that's so cool. And um, she's like, oh, that's blown glass. And I was like, okay, I'm going to look that up. <laughs> you know, whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. And then I, we didn't have internet in my house. Um, this is in the 90s. And we were uh, a late adopter to internet in the country. My parents are well, like very- Well, I mean, there wa- that wasn't available most of the 90s yeah. in your house. My parents would just tell us that they were progressive Amish, so that we could- <laughs> Progressive Amish. And we, we like didn't get it, you know? We were I'm like, going to try that on my kids yeah. now. See like we works. didn't understand, but we believed them. We're like, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so you found a way yeah, to, to exactly. research blown glass. Yeah. So I was at a friend's house and uh, they had the internet. So I was like, you know, there's this thing called YouTube. This is like probably, I don't know, 1999 or something. And so there's this thing called YouTube, and uh, you've probably heard of it. And uh, so I, like, looked it up, and I saw the first video I'd ever seen of anybody blowing glass ever. And it was, mm. like, fire, and, you know, they're waving all this molten material around, mm-hmm. and I was just like, this is it. Uh-huh. I am, like, figuring thing. out how to do this. Fire! Yeah. <laughs> As, like, you know, a 13 or 14-year-old, yeah. like, this is my true calling is yeah. fire <laughs> and dangerous things. And so then I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so then nothing really like came of it for a couple of years, but it was, I was just, I was kind of like reading about it and mm-hmm. I got some books at the library that I had found and like started just like learning as much as I could kind of about the stuff. And there was a lot of information online, mm-hmm. like chat rooms and blogs. Hmm. So like I had all this information that I was kind of assembling in my mind just to like get a better picture of it. And it turned out, I mean, it's very like serendipitous because it turned out the university has a glass program in River Falls, which I didn't know when I first like started getting Mm -hmm. interested in this. And so, so then when I found that out, then like the youth options thing, this program, I was like, I'm getting in the glass class. Mm. Wow. You were really focused and driven. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of focus in high school. Yeah. And so when I was working at the pizza restaurant. I was in my sophomore year, so I was like 16, and I, w- I knew I was going to be going to the university because I already got it admitted in this program. And so one of the other delivery drivers was there with me, and we would do the, we were the prep cooks as well. So when there were deliveries, we're doing the prep cooking. And so he asked me what I was doing that night, and I, I was like, I, you know, I don't know. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to the glass studio. I'm in the program there. And I was just like, what? I was like, are you kidding? The universe like, is speaking to you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I was just like, ah, this is it. And so I said, can I come with you? And he's like, oh yeah, sure. We'll sneak you in there. Cause they, at that point they had 24 hour access. They had like a, you know, a key you could get mm-hmm. in. And so I went, went there and I would help them like make drinking glasses. I made like some marbles and stuff. And hmm. that was my first experience there with it. And then, and then he said, well, come the last day of this, this semester and you can meet the professor. And, uh, uh, t- tell him that you want to get in the class. And so anyway, I did. And he was like, totally, I mean, he's a, he's a kind man. We became friends afterwards, but he was just kind of like, yeah, who's this, you know, like, child? <laughs> yeah. like what are you doing here? And he said, yeah, come back in the fall. Like, you know, we can chat then, whatever. And so then in the summer, I like, I looked him up in the phone book and I, I called his house, like, you know, every week and a half mm-hmm. and, and would ask him if they're, if the class is full. And sometimes he'd, he'd answer, every once in a while he'd answer, most of the time he wouldn't, I'd leave voicemails. I mean, I was very relentless. Wow. And then, like, it was like two weeks, week before the class, and he said, he said, well, uh, you know, I've told you over and over again, like, you, the class is full, you can't get into it, it's for art majors only. And I said, well, I'm going to take it at some point, can I show up to the first day? 
And he said, fine, but you're not in the class. So I showed up the first day. And yeah, I mean, you can imagine what, what, you know, transpires next is like, essentially, he's just like, all right, just don't tell anybody you're in the class. <laughs> Amazing. So, so, so that was kind of the start. You know, I was very, there was a lot of things that just, you know, kind of happened that mm-hmm. made the path a lot easier. Being 19 and very curious and wanting to see the world, I was just like, I really want to get out of here. I was just like, not very happy in the Midwest. Sure. And, you know, it was just like the world is huge and I, I want to go experience it. So I ended up taking this workshop with this artist from Australia and he came to the United States. So I went to Pittsburgh and spent two weeks there. And this is right before I went to Madison. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I really love blown glass. And he said, you should move to Australia. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, no way. And so four months later, I had bought a one-way ticket and I moved to Australia. You really did. Yep. And and is that where you really trained and learned? Yeah, the, that the was craft? a trans. Yeah, that was really a transformational experience. Mm-hmm. The program there. So I went to a school that he lived. The crazy part is he told me to go there, and he lived in a city that was like twenty five hundred miles away. Mm. <laughs> and he was like, "But go to Canberra; it's the best school in the world. You know, that's where you need to go." And I'll hmm. I'll introduce you to the professor via email or whatever, and get you guys connected. And so the. I didn't know anybody, I mean, other than this professor who I had corresponded with a little bit. Mm-hmm. But that school was set up on a Bauhaus model of education where it's very different than U.S. education. So the, it's, it's highly focused. Like you were entering into like this specific domain from mm-hmm. day one. And that sounds perfect for you. Perfect for me, yeah. right? And that doesn't work for some people. For me, like I was like, this is what I want. This mm-hmm. is what I want to do. And so the school also had an incredibly strong visiting artist program. So artists would come from all over the world. And this is like an international school. So in my, my class within the glass workshop, they admitted six students total. That's it. Wow. And so well, only one of those students was from Australia. The rest were from other countries, our international students. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, as you were learning this and, and obviously loving it, were you thinking in your head, I'm going to start a business? Were you thinking about the business applications of um, glassblowing or was it just the, the, the art of it? Yeah, I would say even before the art, like even while I was there, I think it was more like the craft of it, right? And I, I just learned like craft as like process and making. And it's it's like a pragmatic kind of like step-by-step approach where art to me is much more about like you don't have to have the answer. It's very like all, all about the process and the exploration in that process mm-hmm. and what the what the potential could be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe you realize the full potential in art. Maybe you don't. Yeah. And so I think business, like, just, uh, like, didn't even equate to me. I I had no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been selling glass the whole way along. So, like, I guess I was getting some entrepreneurial. You were doing it I was getting some entrepreneurial training, but I didn't, you know, it was all, like, more about necessity, right? It was like, well, I need to buy some color for my glass. Like, I've got to sell some stuff and kind of get this to work. And, you know, my parents were super supportive, you know, especially when I wanted to move to Australia. But, like, they're pretty much like, you're on your own. I mean, we'll, we'll support you. And, you know, they had a, a little bit of financial resources that they would help me with to make sure, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm getting some traction here. But it was very much like, you know, their message was like, if you fail, it's 100% on you because you're the only barrier to your success. It's because mm-hmm. you either didn't work hard enough or you weren't focused enough or you, you didn't make the right decisions. Hmm. We 100% believe you'll be successful in whatever you, you decide to put your mind to. And then their other message was work with the best. If you're going to do it, like, forget everything else. Where are the best people? Where the, where's the space that you can learn the most? And that was ultimately it. Hmm. So I think out of, like, 
when you when you take that kind of risk, I mean, you move halfway across the world, and you know they're basically you know you're kind of like nineteen. It's like figure it out. Yeah. You know, you got a little bit of you know a little bit of safety net behind you, but not a lot enough to you know make sure that you know failure means different things in different stages, and so you feel safe to fail, I guess, so to speak. How long did you stay, and what made you come back? Um, so I stayed there about four years. I have an older sister and she was getting married. And so I was definitely coming back for that. So I like graduated and the next day I flew out, I flew back and, um, bought a one-way ticket cause I didn't really know how long I want to stay. And, and so anyway, I spent about six months here. This is 2008, by the way. I don't know if you remember that mm, year. Yes. I've heard a couple yeah. things about it. So yeah. imagine graduating as an artist in 2008 and you're kind of between two continents. Mm-hmm. So I, I, Came back here for this, you know, family celebration. And then the university uh, offered me like a visiting, uh, a role as a visiting professor. So I, I took that because I was like, oh, I just need like six months to kind of like feel this thing out here. Mm-hmm. Did you like teaching? I, I really did. And, you know, still doing other, other capacities, not necessarily in that same formal setting, but I, I loved it. The issue then I had, though, was over time, it was like that, that structure doesn't allow what I, for what I feel like is a lot of risk taking. Mm. There's a lot of like, I see myself very much as an artist, right? And that's kind of like, you know, how I look at business is like, this is an expression. Hmm. And there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of things really, really different between business and art, and they should not be compared as apples to apples, but there are a lot of parallels and risk is one of them. And so in an educational setting, specifically in an art context, I didn't feel like the students could really take the level of risk or have the level of focus. And that was my biggest challenge. So I was teaching then. And then I ended up going back to Australia for a brief stint just to kind of go like, you know, let me cross check this and make sure that this, you know. this, this feel- really happen? Well, and the, and the feeling that I'm happy having is like, you know, did I miss something here? Right. So uh-huh. it's like before I decide to relocate my life all the way back to the United States, let me go back. And so I went back for about uh, eight weeks and did some like visiting kind of teaching stints and stuff and did a little travel. And I was like, I'm good. That chapter is done. Like, was that peace with it? It was just like, the, it was like really fascinating. Onward. Okay. And I love Australia. And I, I mean, it's got a, definitely a special place in my heart and it's amazing. And there's so many really cool things about the culture there and how it differs from the U.S. And, you know, the way they, you know, look at uh, creativity and art and design. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it was just like, okay, there's, there's something with that chapter that's done. And so then I came back here after this little, you know, stint, travel stint and was trying to figure out, I, I, at that point I wasn't both feet in on the twin cities yet. Okay. I was kind of like in this limbo, like, where do I want to land? Because the, you know, I was in a very, I spent a lot of time in Sydney. It's only about three hours where I live. So almost every weekend I'd be in Sydney, mm-hmm. which is a cosmopolitan global, yeah. you know, it's like very fun city. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, the Twin Cities also is a very different place today than it was in 2008, 2010. Sure. Culturally, we have, we have definitely moved the needle, in mm-hmm. my opinion. And so, but it was just like, kind of like these two, you know, polar opposite experiences that I've had. And so what I did was being kind of the pragmatist, this would be the craft person, right? Which is, I think, also the business person is like, well, where can I set up shop? So I did the research. I'm like, cost of living, barriers to entry, how much is it to rent space? What are their infrastructure? And when I talk about infrastructure, it's both soft and hard, right? Hard infrastructure would be like a glass blowing facility. Soft infrastructure would be like, is there like a networking thing? Or like, what mm-hmm. are, who, how do I meet people? How, how do I, can I get that social 
minutiae going, right? And did you know that you wanted to start your own thing? You didn't think about going to work for someone else? Or? There weren't really jobs available. I mean, hmm. you know, this is 2008, 2009, number mm-hmm. one. And number two, even if you're a really successful glass artist, you maybe have one or two assistants and that's still like kind of a part-time seasonal or short-term, like one to two year thing, mm-hmm. right? So there weren't really jobs unless you want to go work in like a factory Got it. environment. And did you know what specifically you wanted to make, what you were going to do no. in glass? Okay. Uh, no, I, I didn't. I just, I knew that I wanted to do it myself because <laughs> I'm strong-minded and independent. But at the same point, I knew I didn't want to do it by myself, mm. right? So like, I, I'm like, I'm not that interested in like, just like, being like this is only me or this is my thing and that's Mm -hmm. it just you and your fire and your yeah that's not me like (laughs) i'm a very social person and i like you know i'm sort of my recharge is like from from building like with other people Mm -hmm. and so looking at all the barriers kind of at at like three or four different cities in the united states versus kind of the lifestyle the the market opportunities and the barriers to entry i was like wow i have like way more advantages like setting up in minneapolis and like this is it you know Mm -hmm. and like so basically from that moment it was like, okay, both feet in. And I had a very different life. I mean, that period took about 18 months to two years. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was enrolled as an MFA student at MCAD. I was still teaching full time. And then I was doing like, you know, art fairs on the side, like a dine art fair and oh. uptown and stuff. That's kind of how I started like, you know, selling enough glass to make a little bit of money. And was that like, what was your style then? Was it like decorative pieces? Yeah, it was like was decorative it? wares, you know, okay. like vases, bowls, some of it not not like fully function, like kind of non-functional decorative. And then a lot of functional stuff, drinking glasses, stuff okay. like that. Yeah. Would I recognize the the Jackson Schwartz no. style? No. no, it would look totally different than today. Yeah, totally different. Nothing like Hennepin and, made. And that stuff like had, some threads but it was like way more colorful and just it was very different you know and it it was you know ultimately you're tailoring it to your audience right Mm -hmm. and so like we had to tailor it to that audience and I can still make things that I very much believe in and I think the aesthetic's really nice Mm -hmm. and it's like of that time and of that place but so you ultimately decide to set up shop here in the Twin Cities yeah so uh so I'm teaching still at River Falls. I'm in an MFA program for, again, three months. <laughs> There's a pattern here, right? <laughs> quit early and quit often when you need That's to, right? Really, I like it. Quit so, early and often. Yeah. So I'm in the MFA program at MCAD, and uh, I'm teaching at River Falls. And I'm, like, doing these art fair things on the side, commissions and whatever I can find. And I'm just like, I got to quit everything. And just, like, I got to, like, figure out a different, like, path here. Hmm. And so my students at the time were amazing. And I'm only like, granted, I'm only like one to two years older than a lot of these. And some of them younger than. <laughs> and so they were, they were great. And they were like so energized. And I came back with all these tech techniques and all, all this knowledge. And so they were just like, and, but there was no, no opportunity. Like there was nowhere for them. They were going to graduate and there's nowhere for them to go. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like feeling like, well, I need, I need people around me, right? I don't want to do this by myself. Yeah. And so I'm like, who's around me? And there was a nonprofit glass center here that had a, you know, a little different culture than I think my level of intensity or focus, as you probably can imagine. Uh, so my business partner, his name's Joe Limpert. Uh, he actually is the one who talked me into starting the studio. Well, us. I mean, so he, he had never built a studio. I'd built a couple. And I was just like, this is such a long journey and it's really hard. And, and like now we have to take care of this thing. And so we kind of made like a promise to one another. My promise was I would like we would build a successful studio. Mm-hmm. And then he had to promise that I would go find a, a, a consistent client or revenue stream. Hmm. And he would help me deliver on that because that's the only way that this whole thing makes sense. Okay. And so we had done some lighting commissions with architects and designers. And 
out of all the things that I'd done, like commission work around, that was by far the most enjoyable. Hmm. Why? Because you add, like light is a really like ethereal material, right? It's yeah. a different material than glass. Mm-hmm. And so now all of a sudden you have like this really tangible, like firm, like, you know, glass is relatively concrete. You can hit it with your hand, right? And then you have light. That's this super ethereal thing. So well, I don't, and you don't want to hit it too hard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we make the pieces kind of thick, you know, they're durable. Pretty durable. Okay. They're built for life. Yes. Good, or multiple. Good, good. So when you combine the light and the glass, then it's like, there's just a lot of other elements at play, yeah. which is really exciting and really fun. And so that that's more from like the artistic and the expression side. And then from like, you know, the, the pragmatism, the business side, which I was learning the whole way along and I didn't even know. It was like, you know, everybody has lights in their house, right. you know, and every business has yeah, a lot of demand versus yeah. like trying to sell vases. Sure. Sure. So it was just very different as far as the, the market that you could tap into. And then additionally, the, the value perception, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a vase versus a light. Well, we perceive a light as a much higher value because of the functional use of it and how it fits into our everyday life. Interesting. So so you, the two of you start a studio together and you decided from day one it was going to be a lighting studio. That was going to be your product and your focus. Yeah. And we still made the other things, but it was very much like lighting is the way. Mm-hmm. And the like drinkwares and the other things. I mean, like we started the studio like totally like shoestring budget. Like I bought everything I could off eBay and Craigslist. No new equipment. I mean, what year was this? This is 2011. And did you call it Hennepin made then? Well, funny story. So we knew we couldn't call it like Joan Jackson's glass, you know, like need to be something a little <laughs> bit, you know, we weren't like brand experts. Yeah, but yeah. We called it Hennepin to start. Okay. Like just Hennepin. And then we, we would host these studio sales, like selling drinking glasses. Imagine like, um, you know, it's basically like a keg party, uh-huh. you know, like a college party because sure. we're 23. Yeah. And we would sell, you'd buy a drinking red glass. Cups. Instead of the red cup, it's a $30 <laughs> hand-blown glass. <gasps> wow. And that's how we paid like rent every month, you know? That's amazing. Yep. And people uh, got to take their glass You get with to them. take their glass home. <laughs> and that's our rent check, right? Yes. So that was Very like- Very practical. I mean, it was literally like- each month it was like, all right, we got to come up with this check next month. Like how many people do you think will show up for a, a party? And will and we, they pay for our glass? Yeah. And we'd like, we'd give our friends like a free glass, you know, to play like, you know, music. We had like a jazz trio sometimes, you know, we like, made it mm-hmm, nice. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the, the initial model. But then, so when we did that, we were running people's credit cards or whatever. And then we ended up getting like some, uh, you know, people inquiring uh, about the charge, like, you know, later on because they thought they got a parking ticket from Hennepin County oh. or something. <laughs> You know, and people would always ask Hennepin what, but we were trying to be abstract, but it like just didn't. It's a, it's a little too abstract. Yeah, exactly. So okay. then it was like, well, we're makers. Because like Hennepin glass, I was like, that's like auto glass or something, you know? Uh-huh. And so Hennepin made, we're makers. So it was like, well, let's call it Hennepin made because like we started on Hennepin Avenue. That's why it's called Hennepin. Got it. Yep. And the whole, the whole idea for me is like being rooted in place. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I said earlier, like a business to me is like an, exp- it, it's a form of expression. I don't see it in all the other ways that we have to see it by the, the functional necessities in running a business. That stuff all is like interesting. But at the end of the day, for me, the motivate the pure motivator is that it's an expression. It's an expression of what I believe, what I'm mm. interested in, what I'm trying to create. Mm-hmm. And so a, a large part of what I get excited about is, is creating a sense of place and having rootedness mm-hmm. as much as possibility. So I was like, I, you know, I, I felt like I really picked Minneapolis, you know, because I was like, conscious decision yeah i was like i was really like i could Could have been anywhere could have been anywhere yeah and then kind of the signals kept saying you know anchor it here this is the right the right spot how long did it take to go from 
supplying glass at keg parties to, you know, making lighting for big companies and architects and room and board and things like well, that. Well, yeah, so we I wanted to I wanted to approach room and board before we had the studio. Hmm. Cuz again, I like wanted to not have all this like risk. Mm-hmm. And I knew that like walking into, you know, a large company and going showing them really, you know, what I felt like was really high quality beautiful things. I I, I figured they would get excited, but I knew the first question they would ask is how do you how are you going to produce it? Mm-hmm. And can you produce enough? <laughs> can you scale? Yeah. yeah. And when we did end up getting them into our facility and first showed them our first designs, that was the first question they asked, can, can you, scale? you scale? And how fast? Mhm. And so I knew that. And so I knew a good, uh, and you kind of, you only get uh, so many chances, right? There's mm-hmm. only so many times you get to walk through the door and kind of have everything lined up to reduce those barriers to make something work. And so I, I knew that if I walked through that door and, and that was kind of the, the first introduction, it was like all kind of hypothetical, we could build it to take this long, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I figured that that probably wasn't the right time to walk through the door. So we went ahead and built the studio and the cake, you know, the parties and the drinking glasses, that was kind of the interim to just like, the the goal was if we're building the studio, we're going to get in room and board as our first customer. So how did room and board react? Jackson tells us about his very unique pitch after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank. Providing a means to a dream. Jackson proves that it's possible to take a creative approach to everything you do in business, even landing your first big retail client. Take a listen. We like to create experience, you know, and we want to, we're artists. Like we, we didn't just have them come in and like say, okay, come look at product, you know, because that's kind of like, I don't know. It just felt a boring. little boring. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's like, you know, like we, we, did, we weren't intentionally trying to start a business. We just like wanted to do like our art and our crap. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, how can we not have them just walk in and like have this formal meeting and like they like make selections kind of like out of catalog type thing and there's samples there. And so we, I was like, let's, let's throw a pop-up dinner party in our studio and, and do, we'll move in a kitchen. So I bought this oven off Craigslist and, you know. And uh, I worked at um, La Belle V at the time. Oh, wow. At, at night as a valet. And so um, had a like, strong connection, the, the chef community. And we had a, a colleague who kind of owed me a favor. So I asked this friend, I said, hey, can you, can you cook this dinner party for room and board and a few other designers? And he's like, yeah, man, let's do it. And so we cooked like mussels in the, you know, in the, uh, in the firing chamber and, and s'mores. And it was really, really fun. And uh, so anyway, they, they all came and they were just like, oh, my God, this is so wild, so mm-hmm. fun. And so then you wooed them. Yeah, exactly. You know, you got to have some finesse. <laughs> and uh, so then they said, OK, we'll come back in like two weeks and do kind of the formal thing. So at that point, I was like, perfect. You know, like then mm-hmm. we can do kind of the more formal thing. Because I don't know. I've always found it like a little strange that like when you're when you're when you realize you're going to do you potentially do business with people that, you know, it's a really deep partnership. You're going to invest a lot of time and energy. Mm-hmm. The thing you start with is like a contract. I mean, I get it, you know, like I understand, but I, I've always found that to be a bit strange. It's like, well, shouldn't we just like hang out and like get you, to know each other? Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. like, shouldn't we get the essence a little bit first? Totally. And maybe that's me being like an artist and being, you know, more about like what the potential is. 
I'm curious, and maybe this is my practical side, did they right away, did they dictate what they wanted from you or were you showing, I mean, did you, you didn't have a catalog at that point, did you? No. So what's really cool about their, um, just the way they work with, uh, you know, us uh, or have worked with us since the beginning is they're like, you're the artist, you're the, you're the experts in your craft. You tell us. You can wow. see what we do. You know. Wow. I mean, they don't have to take anything. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, if you're, no, they're if not you're, obligated. Yeah, if you're terrible, like then they'll just be like, "Enough for us, whatever." Right. But ultimately, that's what they really want because they don't. I think they don't want you know like us to feel like oh we're just having to punch out these units that's one after another. Like mm-hmm. they want us to feel like oh that's a really nice object mm-hmm. because we're going to take way more care and compassion into putting it into that that piece. And so they said, "Okay, we'll come back in two weeks." So the whole team came back and. We had made, I think it was 18 different designs, most of them lights and then some vases and some bowls. Mm. Uh, we were kind of doing this like little, you know, kind of pump up meeting prior, like, okay, if they take like a, one vase and one bowl and then maybe a light, like we're set. We're mm-hmm. like, we're good. We, we don't have to have the cup parties anymore, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> rent, is, rent. Yeah. rent is paid for. And so we went through design by design and they were pretty excited and, you know, they, they kind of, they negotiate with us a little bit on pricing and just try, trying to get stuff to work with where, where their price levels were at and stuff. And we're like, yeah, yeah. And we basically just said yes to everything because we were just like, we have no clue what we're doing. And yeah, like, yeah, you know, we, we'll make it work. Mm-hmm. And so then they were like, okay, this is great. And it was, from what I recall, a relatively short meeting. It was probably maybe 45 minutes. And they were like, this is great. We'll run with everything. We need prototypes in like, you know, four weeks or whatever. Can you do, 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 do? Could you hide your shock? Yeah. No, we tried our best. <laughs> and then they walked out. And when they walked out, we weren't like, I mean, we weren't even like high fine. We were like, how are we going to do this? You right. know, it was like. Did you have any staff at this point? Well, the cool thing is I had all these students, uh-huh, right? And uh-huh. so I was like, this is kind of the whole part of the mission for me was like, I want to employ all these students. or I just. My mission was I want them to continue doing glass, right? Mm-hmm. That's like what I cared about. Mm-hmm. And so so Joe, my business partner, he was still a student when he started this business. Mm. I only got him like three days a week at most. Okay. And he was like in his last year. And then when we got that going, I was like, you got to quit school. And he's like, there's no way I can quit school. Mm-hmm. He's like, my parents will like disown me. me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, get D's, man. I don't know. Like whatever, <laughs> like... You, I only believe in three month stints at a time. That's right. I was like, you <laughs> start a me. business. Like, <laughs> right. you, dude, you go to business. We got yeah. like, to ship this stuff. And so they ended up, yeah, they bought the prototypes and I got the PO for the, um, for the photo sample order. And I thought like, I just remember seeing this PO and I was like, we made it. I was like, we told, this is it. We mm-hmm. made it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the first order. It was just the photo samples, you know? <laughs> And and I thought, oh my God, we're gonna be so successful, you know. And then here now, like you know, almost ten years later, it's like understanding like what it really takes to build an organization. Yeah, you know. So it's like, oh wow. Then every every time you kind of like take the next step forward and you scale up or or try to create more opportunity, there's a whole nother layer of you know resources that are needed to do that. Of course, which is all great. So were you able to deliver on that first order? Yeah. So. Like when when we that what I tried to explain to uh, Joe and then the other people that were working for us at the time, like when we commit, we commit. So when 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 we say we're going to do it, we do it. Mm-hmm. And that always was like the message, and we ship on time. Mm-hmm. And shipping on time was like you know it's the same thing as like getting the pizza on time. It's mm-hmm. like you know any of it, anything I've ever done. It's like you know like when you say you're going to do it, you got to deliver. And it doesn't mean you're going to be a hundred percent because nobody is ever a hundred percent. But you better get as close as you possibly can. 
And so, yeah, we delivered. We delivered consistently on time and scaled. And we had our issues, you know, but consistently on time we scaled. And there was such a steep learning curve. Like I packed all the first pallets by myself because all my team was in school. And so I'm like <laughs> in there, like, you know, overnight packing boxes. And, and then um, this guy, Chris Yerke, he still works at Room Board. He works in their warehouse and I'm awesome. He's just an amazing kind person, great educator. He received these pallets of product and he goes, he calls me or he emails me and said, Hey, can, can we chat? And, and he said, yeah, these aren't done right at all. Like this stuff's all going to break if we send it oh. out. And he said, I'm not sending it back to you, but like, we, let's, let's go through like, you know, how to get it so that, you know, we can deliver it to the customer. Properly, sure. Which yeah. was really nice. Yeah. So just like stuff, simple stuff like that. I'm also curious um, th- because you do your hand blowing glass and it's art. And so there's an element of a little bit of uniqueness to each piece, I would imagine. And yet when you're working with a company like Room and Board, they need hundreds of the same things so they mm-hmm. can sell it at all their stores. How do you balance that? Well, there's a few things. One, one kind of story to that is when we first started, like technical glass blowers are trained to have such a high standard level that is kind of their own rules. And a lot of what they discern as high quality actually lowers the perceived quality by the general person, hmm. right? Like glass blowers in, in a technical sense, that culture is, is trained that the thinner you can blow it, the higher quality because it's harder technically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like if you purchase a, a product, right, mm-hmm. and, it, and it doesn't have like hardly any weight to it, you don't think that naturally. We just think it's like lower quality because it can break easier sure. too, right? Um, and so there was a lot of things like that where like I, ha- I kept trying to reinforce like we don't make glass for ourselves. We make it for the person that's going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. What do they care? It took like a couple of years, you know? Right. Um, so we, one, we had to re- reframe like kind of how, how we interpreted quality that aligned better with the customer. And then two, like our standards are really, our tolerances are really, really tight. I mean, like quarter inch completely made by hand, Mm -hmm. but the same point, we don't want to eradicate the essence of the hand. Right. So that's, that's how we balance that is one, each piece should have enough character that it feels unique. But if you purchase three of one thing, you don't want to feel like you got shipped three different things. Sure. And so we have, we have tolerance standards. We do use some, some molds, to give us more consistent form on some of the pieces. Mm-hmm. But our best sellers and our favorite pieces are very much the ones that show more of the element of the hand. And I think people really, you know, I think even more and more as time goes on and technology automates more things, we're going to want more of that. Yeah. And so it's really finding the lane between those two things. How much of your business is room and board today? So right now it's about a third maybe. Okay. And so when we started, they were like 99.9. Yeah. <laughs> So it's about a third. They're they're you know one of the critical components. Yeah, for sure. And and the rest is predominantly architects and designers. So we work all over the world, and we we call on firms. So if you were an interior designer, you know, at a, a firm, we would call your office and try or email and try to set up an appointment. We come in and we do have a catalog now, mm-hmm. uh, digital, you know, <laughs> um, and we would bring samples and we talk about our capabilities and services and how the how the businesses those segments of business differ. As room and board is very much like we're designing product that's very scalable and we streamline the amount of options. Mm-hmm. And so it's very much like a retail-driven wholesale model design process. And then our other product is, is very like tailored, right? There's all these different options, specification that can be created to sort of configure the product in a lot of different ways and we customize. 
obviously different price points and different things go into that. So we service those markets differently with the different parts of the business. And they do a really good job of, I think, creating a nice mix. In it was, was it like 2015 that you decided to move? You, you yeah, needed... 20, yeah, 2015 was our start. 2016 is when we moved. Okay. And that was, I mean, that was driven by the fact that you were growing and, and needed more space, right? Yeah. So from 2012 is really when we shipped the first pieces to room and board, which I, I would say is the start of the business, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. formally. So from 2012 to, to 2016, we, we had like over 100% year over year growth for, hmm. you know, every year. And so scaling very, very quickly. And we, I mean, we started in like 800 square feet in a warehouse in Northeast Minneapolis, you know, that it was garden level, which Mm -hmm. is code for the basement Basement. that has, you know, some like glass block up in the corner that leaks. Mm -hmm. And so we started in the garden level. um, And then we extend, we extended from 800 to about 2,500. We just kept kind of like annexing this web of spaces in this basement. And so we had like a patchwork kind of maze of spaces that were not optimized at all. And we ended up with about 5,000 square feet. And we knew we wanted to scale. We knew we needed to scale. And so it was like, what, when you're building a manufacturing facility, like what is the right jump to take? Because if you just take like 2X or something for as far as the production capacity, you're going to outrun that so fast compared to the amount of investment and resources to set it up. Yeah. Back to that risk taking. Right. So it was like, okay, what's the right scale? And then I really wanted to, you know, a, I wanted to keep the business in the urban core because we employ artists and we're, again, we're an expression, we're a culture business in my opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's how I think it. And not in the sense of like, what's your organizational culture, but like, I think we, we are a business that produces culture mm. because, you know, we're, we're in the fashion business. I mean, that's what interiors is. It's the fashion business mm-hmm. and fashion is culture. So yep. Yep. it may be a little abstract, but like, no, it to makes, me, it, to it me, makes it perfect very, sense. So I definitely wanted to be in the in the core of the city, and we needed enough of a footprint that we could really scale and expand what we did. And then, um, you know, I wanted to add in some sort of hospitality element because I just felt like that's really important to, you know, what I'm excited about. Because you've only been doing this a few years, and why not take on a whole other business? Yeah, that was a steep learning curve. <laughs> so so you did. You bought this building. It's how It's how big? 30,000 square feet. It's about a two-acre site. Okay. And for anyone who's not familiar, it's just, I mean, it's it's within, I mean, you, you, could, you, could, you can easily walk to Target Field. It's just west of downtown. Yep. Yeah, it's on the Glenwood Corridor. And so. you kind of, you saw a future that not a lot of people saw for that neighborhood. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I researched over time from, you know, the time of my, like, kind of, like late teen, those formative years in Australia, because now all of a sudden I'm existing with artists in a totally different city. Mm-hmm. I started researching, well, through like a lot of my art theory classes and art history classes, I started to learn about how art, what art role art and artists play in an urban dynamic, right? Mm. In, in the way society's formed is that's where you start. And then society is dominated by, through cities, mm-hmm. right? That's essentially the engines of society. Mm-hmm. You can make the argument in a lot of domains. And so... So then all of a sudden I started finding myself like really excited about urban dynamics. So like, you know, reading like Jane Jacobs and, you know, kind of life and death of the city and some other things. And uh, setting up, once I picked Minneapolis to like plant the seeds, I'm like, okay, there has to be a bigger vision here than like the three of us glassblowers in the basement of this garden level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
And so I really, you know, like the vision would be like building something that's, that is sustainable way, way longer than I'm around. And like, how amazing would it be if, if glassblowers are a part of the core of downtown or the core of the city, hmm. you know, just like a, a fish market is the core of Seattle, right? Like people go to the other Seattle market and, you mm-hmm. know, there's like a whole yeah. experience there. Yeah, yeah. I really loved the area by the farmer's market and along Glenwood was one of my favorite ones. And, you know, I think for, for the history of this place being, you know, an amazing center of food production, both from, you know, larger scale systems all the way to the grassroots, our food scene. I just thought, wow, this is really cool to have this farmer's market here and we can bring this, this craft and art element to this neighborhood. And I knew that the light rail was coming through there as well at some point. When we purchased the building, the owner, he had this huge stack of files and it was all the light rail paperwork. And he's like, I remember him handing me, he goes, here you go, if it ever happens. Because he had been talking about it for like 10 years. Yeah. And so I knew this catalyst project was going to be coming through this neighborhood. And what, what's really unique about that neighborhood is that it didn't really have a lot of driving identity other than the farmer's market, which yeah. operated predominantly on weekends. Where Northeast, it started as an arts district. That's what it's seen as. Mm-hmm. But it's ultimately a brewery district. That's what its, it's larger kind of attractiveness is on a consistent, you know, kind of day-to-day level. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like it doesn't, I, there is a name for it, but yeah, I don't so, think most people know it. Yeah. So Root District is the, is the name for the district. And so in 2018, we'd been there for two years. And at the same time, we got uh, a couple billion dollars approved, half of which came from the federal government for the light rail approximately. Uh, in that same month, the, the, there was approval for a sale of a building to be reused as, as self-storage. And for those, of, those people that don't know a lot about the urban real estate market. Self-storage is a really strong cash flow business, which means that that use is going to be there for a long time. And so if you have a, a $2 billion investment, one of 12, I think it's 12 or 13 stops, is in a district that just approved something, those are very, that will be there for a long time, that doesn't attract people. Mm. And we're thinking 20 years from now, those are completely divergent strategies on how to use land and how to develop, you know, an urban economy. Yeah. And, and so I felt like, you know, the community and the people I was supporting was way more aligned with the transit investment than the self-storage investment. Interesting. Right. And so Mm -hmm. enlightened self-interest says, well, I'm more aligned with the farmer's market and the transit investment. So those, those are, those people are my allies. Yeah. So um, I called a colleague of mine, Dan Collison, who was working as the executive director of New Loop Partners, which operates under the downtown council. And we had done some, you know, convening work and planning work through this Glenwood Corridor study. And I said, Dan, we have this issue. <laughs> These are very, like, who's paying attention? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, and what we have a lot of times happen is, so the last plan was a sto- the soccer stadium going in that neighborhood. And that was in 2014. And like, once that fell off, then like, there was no attention and no, and I were to argue no long-term vision. And, and most of what's there right now, besides the farmer's market, it's... Single story, 1960s, you know, non-historical, ultimately low long-term value real estate buildings. And not to say that what people do in those isn't valuable, but if we think about the level of investment and how that, how that space could be used, yes, Mm -hmm. I think there's something else we could be creating. Sure. So I said, we need to like get some people together to talk about this. So Dan and I had coffee and we talked about an approach. We set out a 12 month project to do listening sessions and convenings. And we did a, a urban design workshop with the city of Minneapolis, co-convening that. So after those 12 months, you know, I, I was trying to figure out how we could frame a concept 
really, and thinking about the farmer's market as the, the, the core of that district, but it has to be more than the farmer's market. We're talking about like, like 30 to 40 developable acres of land. Mm-hmm. So the farmer's market currently is one acre. So the, the district needs enough, uh, the, the concept needs enough elasticity that it can extend beyond that, but still ties to that farmer's market as part of the element. And so I came up with this idea of the root district, and we studied a lot of the historical patterns of gentrification, displacement, you know, um, all kinds of things that do not allow opportunities for all the people that exist in our community. And so came up with this concept, root district, one, to think about, you know, the historical roots of that place. And then two, like the seeds we're planting right now are going to be the roots for the future. So there's, you know, a metaphor there. And then tangibly, it's like, well, roots grow things, right? They're the support element to growing things. And that connects to the farmer's market as well. Hmm. And the reason we needed a name and I, some form of identity, which, you know, isn't very well known now, but, you know, in theory, it, it would be, be. In, in 10 to 15 years, yeah. is when we move there and for the first several years, and even now, it's like, it's defined by proximity. Oh, yeah, we're, we're across from IMS. We're uh, right on the other side of the free. Oh, right. right where Glenwood's closed, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, around the corner from Which the farmer's exactly market. exactly how I described it. Yeah, yes, sorry right? about that. No, no, no. <laughs> but so that's what I present to this group of leaders at the state, city, county, you mm-hmm. know, um, private sector. It said, this area is defined by proximity, you know, and this is my sort of call to action to, to get behind a naming convention here. Yeah. And, and it, it's technically North Loop neighborhood, which if I say North Loop, we are not That's thinking. That's not what we're thinking. <laughs> we're of. not thinking no. of that. No. And I don't think we need to form a new neighborhood. We should have a district within the North Loop that has a very different look and feel. What's interesting is if you were, let's say, in the restaurant business or it was a boutique hotel, it would be very important to make sure that the neighborhood was developing around you. You're manufacturing and you've already got these big clients and you're shipping around the world. And then you take on this whole other project. Yeah, it's maybe not the smartest idea. <laughs> so, so the bit, so Hennepin made is is humming along. You're you're growing. Yeah, oh yeah, we we same- grew it. Yeah, we grew it at um, 60, 60 or seventy percent, sixty five percent, sixty seven percent, twenty twenty two. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, you've you've moved into this much larger building. Mm-hmm. You open a cafe. And an event space. How were you dividing your time when you first started all that? And that was pre-pandemic. Not well. <laughs> um, well, so I, I think I hadn't really had a situation prior to that period in my life where I'd taken on more than I could handle. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the learning experience for me was like, you know, and I felt very, very confident. I'm still, you know, feel confident that we're going to be successful and we are being successful. But that, that kind of like really challenged, I think, challenged my thought process and, and really challenged what, how I want to utilize my time and how I can utilize my energy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I totally like ended up taking on way more than I should have. And, um, it, you know, you get halfway in and it's like, there's no quitting this one. What, what did you learn from that time of taking um, on so much? Well, so a few things. One is I think I learned that, you know, there's only so much you can provide for, you know, maybe more altruistic or bigger things or things that you can't necessarily monetize on. And there's only so much space and time for that. And it's based on the level of what you're creating to take care of the people in it and yourself, right? Like you only can provide for other people once you provide for yourself. And when I say myself, I think of like all the employees that Basically, yeah. relying on me to make smart decisions. Right. You got to have a successful business, yeah. basically. Yeah. And so I think um, that was uh, at times a challenging 
balance. And I, I learned that, you know, I, I have a tendency to go like both feet in all the way really fast. Mm-hmm. And so being a little bit more cautious, not necessarily on taking things on, but more just like, what is the level I can commit and being more honest with people around that. And then the other thing is um, really making sure that as you commit to taking, building, you know, we built a whole nother business. As you do that, really understand what the implications are for your existing business. Understand what the, what the trajectory looks like. You know, this is pre-pandemic. You can't plan for something like that. But if you do have essentially the bottom fallout, of if it's the market or whatever, like, how are you going to respond? You probably should like have had those thoughts already. Yeah. The good news is I pushed us, uh, I pushed myself and just kind of our capacity in, in multiple respects, both with people, team, finances, everything. I pushed it like all the way to the limit and, and realized that prior to that we got to the limit, but I knew I, ha- I was going to have to keep, you know, I was going to have to get us right up to the edge of a lot of risk. But, and I already could see that, you know, several months out that that's the finish line. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we were like, so like, it it just came down to like, you know, splitting hairs, like essentially making it right. And getting it all to to come together. And I, I was really struggling and I I reached out a a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur told me about this program at St. Thomas that has, um, it's funded by the SBA office. And so they have this ad- advisor program. You get access to, to advisors that no cost. So mm. I reached out and got set up with this advisor. It was incredible. And we, I mean, he still advises me today. Like I, I talked to him and then the, the person, the two gentlemen I bought the building from actually became like mentors of mine. And one is in a cohort group with me now. His name is Bill Sullivan. I'm really amazing. Um, and the other one, his name is Doug. He, he passed away. But so the first thing I did was when I realized I was in this predicament, I went to Doug, who's, who was who an accountant, on bring glass we bought the building from with Bill. And, and, and Doug had some choice words for me. We'll just say that. And was this before you opened the cafe? Or um, were you in the middle of building I was that like, out? I was like, I was in the, I, I was in the middle of it. Okay. Uh, and, and ultimately he, he, he had some, you know, he, he really, he, we had a strong affinity for one another. <laughs> But he had some choice words for me and he said, you know, he said, don't worry, like most entrepreneurs make that mistake and they do it once because mm-hmm. you, you use short term cash. You used your operating capital for long term investment. And when you do that, unless you're very careful, you're going to run out of cash mm-hmm. and you get really excited about what the potential is. And then you, you, you roll the dice too heavy and you don't allow any room for any, you know, contingency. And so, um, he had some advice and kind of was there too. But so anyway, over about eight months, I went from being, you know, in a really tough spot financially and, and very precarious to, to being very diligent to getting us onto stable ground. And then like we got everything set up and then the pandemic hit. And, you know, I'm like, I mean, the co- I mean, I must say your cafe was lovely. Yeah, well, it, it was, was great. It was absolutely lovely. And it was always full. I mean, did it ever make any money? Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah, by the end, not not a profit center. By 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 all means, if you if you looked at it as far as my time investment versus the, the value I could create and monetize, it was a bad decision. Yeah, but I don't. We didn't. I didn't look at it that way. Once it at least it got to break even or was profitable. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's like community amenity, like the amount of people that you know I got connected to. You mm-hmm. know, like I met you through that cafe, yeah, right? And the network we created. It right? made so many more people aware of your brand. Totally. Yep. Aware of Hennepin Made, you eventually opened a showroom for the yep. product, yep. and then the whole event space. Was the event space successful? Yeah, you're still doing that. Yeah, event, the event space is very successful, and that's a that's a very good long term business for us because it offers us a lot of flexibility, and it's a pop up model essentially. I mean, you have your private events too, right? Mm-hmm. But you can kind of pick and choose. 
And we, you know, when we were running the, all the businesses, all the aspects of that business, I had like 15 or 17 full-time employees. Now I have three. Hmm. And so like that just, it, it, it reduces the, the amount of revenues you need to have consistently to take care of all that stuff. So you, cl- I mean, in the way the pandemic sort of allowed you a reset. Oh yeah. Allowed me to focus, like refine. Yeah. So, yeah. so the cafe you closed, you sort of. Yeah. Rethought the event business. Yep. That's a lounge concept now. So it's part of the rental. Okay. So we revamped it into like a cocktail bar lounge. So nice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great space. We've had events there for Twin Cities business and we're coming back later this year. Um, we love it. And, and what's happening with the glass business? So with the glass business, we, we've, we hired a lot of people. We, hired, we doubled the headcount over the period of about 18 months. So where are you at now? We're at about 32. Wow. So we were at... Is that full-time? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're at about 16 people, 16, 17 people, um, you know, the year before the pandemic. And then we were... When you're like a small entrepreneurial business, you have to kind of sometimes you go through these cycles where you, you essentially are like have a bigger level of business than the amount of people in it. And you're, you're operating in that way because you probably don't have the time or resources to hire. Like it takes a lot to hire people. Mm-hmm. And so you either have to wait for the business level to kind of level off and you're kind of managing that risk or you have to, you know, somehow get those people supported enough that then they can hire somebody else and bring them in. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. We ended up, I think we were operating with higher levels of business at what was sustainable for the amount of people we had. And so we ended up essentially like over hiring because the pandemic drove up revenues pretty significantly. And so now we're, we're, we're in a bit of an adjustment period where we reduced a little bit, mm-hmm. but we're trying to make, we built an incredible team. So now we're trying to get the, the revenue growth fast enough to be able to make sure that we can keep all those people on board that have amazing skills, have the talent. We found them, we got them integrated yeah. and we want to drive the level of value they can create. And the, the, it drove the business up, the pandemic, you were saying, because people were spending buying, more time at home yeah. and buying new houses and bigger houses and cabins and all of that. Yeah. And like the first thing that happened in the pandemic is everybody looked local. So all of a sudden we like, we had never promoted really locally. Like that really wasn't, we had, we'd sold mostly in the commercial and hospitality design space. So now on the residential side. And all of a sudden we had like residential designers and homeowners like finding us and emailing mm-hmm. us, you know, and there's like no way really to see the product at that point. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, people all of a sudden were like, where can I get stuff in, within 90 miles of my house? Because like nobody's shipping anything. Hmm. And so that, that was kind of the start. And then we realized, oh, there's like another like market here that we can develop both locally, but then focusing more on residential design, interior designers, which we hadn't done in the past, which we can use. It's a B2B, obviously, transaction, but you market more of a D2C way, right? Mm. Because it's like you leveraging digital marketing, social media, Pinterest, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're in the last steps of creating a user portal so they get B2B pricing and then they can buy right through our website. And the housing market's cooling a little bit, but your business is still, still going strong? Yeah, I think a few things. One, like we're we're diverse across many different segments and where we sell, right? So we sell into commercial office, which has been one of the biggest drivers pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I, I think is totally coming back. And I'll, I'll have some comments on that in a minute. Okay. And then hospitality, which is scaling as well. Like there's more hotels and more restaurants coming into the urban core and they have the budgets for the product. And then residential. And on the residential side, we're, we're ultimately like in the, in the luxury market and moving more and more into that. Like mm. our product over time has become more sophisticated and high, you know, higher refinement 
and just the the raw materials we're using are more and more expensive outside the glass because we do some metal and wood componentry. Mm-hmm. And so as we move into the luxury market, ultimately people that have the resources and want the you know high quality artisan crafted goods are going to pay for them. And I, I, you know, there's some limitations in that market. At the same point, but for us, it, it works. We don't we're yeah. not looking to build a you know two hundred million dollar year company. That's that's not our thing. But we we also don't want you know a two million dollar year company. So. You know, there there's plenty of room in that that luxury market on the residential side. In the hospitality side, we we end up looking at a lot of other markets. Minneapolis does have hospitality, and we do a lot of restaurants in town and um, have some pieces in some of the hotels and stuff like that. But you know, in comparison to a size of market like Miami or you know New York, it's mm-hmm. like so. Those are the markets we really look to where you know we can get specified and placed in a project. Would you ever open showrooms in other markets? Do you think? Uh, I think not it, necessary. No, I think it's too expensive for the way our business model's set up. I really like the idea of having like partnership showrooms or you know smaller boutique showrooms that we're a part of. Mm-hmm. So you know, open that really TBD. I mean, we don't really know. We're just at the beginning of kind of moving more into this high end luxury, yeah. Like you know, really luxury, like very you know high quality. Every component is touched by hand. On the commercial office side, though, what's really interesting, we know that there'll be a, there is going to be a constriction of, you know, a reduction mm-hmm. of commercial space, right? We already see the trend happening. And talking to designers and thinking about, like, use cases, the areas that are going to get not less investment but more investment are the areas where people are going to have com- convening functions, right? So they may be the kitchen or the, mm-hmm. the bar area. Yep, we're seeing and that. the breakout rooms, right? All of a sudden, the breakout room is going to feel like this cool hotel, like, you know, mm-hmm. lobby space or whatever. We already see that trend. It's accelerating. That's really good news for us because that's where the budgets will continue to hold steady and increase. And mm-hmm. that's primarily where we're already getting used already is like, you know, the entry is where they want to, where corporations want to make a statement to their, both their employees and their, their clients, you know, and, and then those, those spaces where they really want to create the setting of more of a hospitality environment to get creativity and connection to flow. Interesting. Very cool. Well, while we're on that topic, let's make a few other um, predictions or do a little forecasting. Okay. So, so that's what's happening with office. What is happening with events? Because you're um, seeing Events that are business. back. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my. Uh, yeah. So events are definitely back. And I think the attendance is way up in general events. What I would say, though, is that I think the event, events need to have, they need to be specific around their, their content or context of what they're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're more selective. I think we go, I think in general what I'm seeing is I think people are less willing to try to go to everything Mm. and they're trying to go to the things that they really feel like, oh yeah, that's the thing. At least this is for me, right? Mm -hmm. I used to feel like, oh, I'm going to go to a lot of different things. And now I'm like, I'd rather go to less things where I feel like there's more of the types of people that I want to connect mm. with or, you know, more of the experience I want to have. So if you do show up, we should really feel good about it because <laughs> you've really thought it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about your neighborhood? What about the root district? What do you see happening? Will the road ever open? Yeah, the road is going to open at some point, but you got to talk to the city, well, the county about that, I uh-huh. guess, and Metro Transit. Uh, yeah. So the light rail, you know, is a few years out. We're working on, right now, we're working on trying to figure out the structure for, I think the direction that the group that has invested a lot of time on this is focused on is uh, um, urban food district. And I don't have all the, you know, kind of language around that, but essentially, you know, it's in the city charter. So it's a mandate for the city that they have to have a city farmer's market. Oh. And so if they, if, if the city was going to have to have a city's farmer's market, you think it probably be a, should be like kind of a crown jewel. 
one of the crown jewels of the yeah, city, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the other elements, look at Stone Arch and that whole area, mm-hmm. what the city and the park board and other um, entities have done. I mean, that is very much an attractive component to the city for both tourism and people that want to live in the city Mm -hmm. and do business in the city. And so, you know, developing a concept around a a vertically integrated urban food district, right? Like, what would that be? Like Pike's Place and yeah. So, like, what's our version, right? Yeah. And so, it starts with just thinking about who are all the organizations that we have, who are all the people we have, and then how do they fit in? And so, if you think of, you know, roots, right? We're we're at the soil level. And you think about, okay, the growers, the producers, and then you go up through all of the different levels mm-hmm. all the way up to the consumer, the human mm-hmm. that's eating the food, right? And so there's a bunch of different, um, everything from distribution to production to the ways that we consume food that could exist in that district. Hmm. And so the next probably, I would say, 18 months to two years is like mapping that, trying to get recruitment. And then we really need a political champion. Yeah. Ultimately, we need, you know, like the mayor of Minneapolis or um, some other major political, you know, elected official to say, like, I'm 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 going to put my stamp on this Mm -hmm. saying this is a priority. And we really feel like we can drive something very unique as a city um, Mm -hmm. by doing this. And so our three buckets are um, climate equity and creativity. So um, those are kind of the three conceptual lanes that we run in. Right. And so if we're doing it right, we'll end up with different patterns of development that don't create um, gentr- further gentrification. Um, we'll offset ideally some of that. We'll, we'll, we'll have some sort of wealth building components for um, uh, underinvested communities. And then, you know, ultimately we'll have an experience that attracts people to the urban core. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's, it's such a great location given its proximity to everything around it in the city. And yeah, it's, it's got to happen. And, and you've been such a great champion for it. My question for you, though, is are you putting some boundaries around your time and your other business? Yeah, I've gotten, I think, a lot better at that in the last couple of years. I mean, the pandemic gave a real point of reflection, you know, I think for all of us. From the beginning, my my part of what my motivator was, was to build this infrastructure and then be able to utilize it myself as well, mm-hmm. right? And so it was obviously building it for the people around me, but then like, you know, kind of my my self-interest in it as well was like, and then I want the capacity to like be able to use it and make stuff. And so I made a promise to myself you know, about a year ago that I would get back into making and um, I, don't, I can't really like do it at the level our team does it now. Really? I mean, you know, like it's like getting on a bike, right? Like if I trained for like a couple months and they, they accepted me back, I probably could probably could get up to that level. <laughs> but they respect you as a leader. Oh, they yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. And I, and are you involved in design? Yeah, I, I work a lot in the design. Um, but I, so over the break, we gave everybody, we started th- this last year with two rest periods which was additional paid time off. And mm. so we do the week between Christmas and New Year's and the week over 4th of July. Um, and those are your rest breaks. So you do whatever rejuvenates you. The like, whole company, company closes wise. for those yeah. weeks. Okay. Yeah. And so for me, like I thought about a lot what would rejuvenate me and I'm like, well, making, like, you know, I want to make art specifically. And the constraints of designing to a market and price points and all that kind of stuff, I like, I enjoy. It's a different type of making and problem solving. But then to me, art, as I said before, it's about exploration and the process and the potential. And so I want to tap into that because that's like definitely a life source for me. I get, mm-hmm. I get energy from it. And so I spent that whole week, you know, brought in a couple other team members that assisted and, and helped make work. And so my goal would be that each, you know, 
two to three times a month on weekends and evenings, I'm, I'm making, using the facilities and making artwork and then, you know, figure out where that leads. Hmm. So I've already, I've already started that. I've made good on the promise to myself. I see a whole other line yeah. to turn into, or maybe not, maybe it shouldn't, but yeah, well, I think like, I'd like to do it at a scale that, you know, has a meaningful impact. And it goes back to, you know, when you're saying like, you have this manufacturing company and then you're looking really at like this whole vision around this neighborhood and like, you know, thinking about how this public presence and like, I want to see our art artistic production in the city. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can, you can point to just a couple you know, buildings or places on one hand where that's really possible. And I think what we have the opportunity to do there is weave it into, weave it into the fabric of that neighborhood and make it part of the narrative of what happens in downtown, which typically is not common, right? Because we have site control, we own the site in five to 10 years, you know, I could be a working artist in downtown core producing artworks. And I think that's really interesting. Right. And I, I want to, I also want to connect it to like a business community to kind of show them you know, what an artist does. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to me, I think like between there's a, there's probably an experiential element there. And then, you know, there's probably a tangible thing that, you know, could also become a product in some sense. I don't like to think about if I'm making art as a product because mm-hmm. that applies something else, but <laughs> it may be a saleable object, right? It may be. Yeah. If that happens, it happens. I'm open to it. But it's full circle. Yep. It's an amazing story. We need more big dreamers like you. Well, thank you. Thanks for everything you're doing, Jackson. It's so exciting to watch and I'm sure there's much more to come. Yeah. Thanks for the time. I really enjoyed it today. Well, if you haven't been over to Hennepin Maid's Glass House in Minneapolis, you really should check it out. It's a cool facility and so many things going on there, just as you heard from Jackson himself. What fascinates me is that Jackson is definitely more artist than business person in a sense. He didn't he doesn't have that MBA background. And so I found myself wondering, what would someone like John McVeigh, who teaches entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas, Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, have to say about a mind like Jackson's artist, business person, somewhere in between? What say you, Professor McVeigh? Um, well, what, it, what his wonderful story tells me is that this separation we tend to make between the arts and business is perhaps not very healthy or smart mm-hmm. and um, will become less important even in the future. He, he, he beautifully states, look, they do have some things in common, risk. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a whole lot more than risk. The whole creative side and the whole idea that businesses are an institution that actually make meaning in our in our society and you can hear that through his his whole conversation mm-hmm. but i i would like to frame this even broader because we're hearing a lot and you know that a lot of this is affecting our students you know in the past generation robots are going to replace us all mm-hmm. well they're going to replace all all the welders and all the manufacturing assemblers and then it was like okay smart robots are well maybe they're going to start replacing the the, the lower level white collar workers mm-hmm. and now it's like oh chatbot ddp is gonna replace high level thinking right so the question is what on earth is going to happen to human beings what does employment mean in the future and i think you hear from this story is the arts businesses that are closer to the arts and see their center as in the arts are probably the future for employment Hmm. in an economy like ours. Very interesting. You know, the arts by definition are the things that mean most to us and are the things that 
are hardest to replicate, mm-hmm. um, you know, in a sort of automated fashion because, you know, the beautiful lampshades that he makes are not just functional. They are things of human beauty that only human beings appreciate. Right. And so think that, you think that writ large across everything we do, the foods we make here, the lampshades we make here, either we're going to make nothing here and everything's going to be made cheap and functional in China, Bangladesh or Africa, where the emerging markets are going. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to have no role or we have to find parts of every industry where there is still some aesthetic value to the products that we make. And that's where we can focus our efforts. And you have to tell that story, too, because I do think there is a segment of consumers that cares, that wants to be able to say this was made by hand. This was made in Minnesota. I know the person who came up with this design. Absolutely. And there will always be that. You know, as more and more of us get satisfied, our needs get pretty much satisfied by standardized products and services that are made very well and very cheaply. It frees us up to have certain aspects of our life where we can still afford to buy the things that are special, that actually mean something to us. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think it's interesting if we, Alison, if we think on the other side, it's what we have to say to our young people from our economy is you are not probably going to get a repetitive job. You aren't even going to get a very repetitive thinking job in you know, the suit on. You're going to have to find a place where you have some special skills, where you have some special contribution that is going to be valued for its aesthetics and its meaning. Yeah. And if you don't have that, you're going to find a hard time, find a place. You know, at St. Thomas, we pride ourselves finding our business education on the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's becoming more important, not less important, because we are going to have to convince our students that is where they're going to find their distinctiveness. So without even realizing it, Jackson was sort of on to this forward thinking. It's not really about the numbers or the bottom line. It's about the bigger well, picture and the meaning. You say, yeah, I mean, you say without thinking about it. I think he was thinking about it. He was incredibly responsive to the market. Mm-hmm. And he's very intuitive. He realized intuitively, I cannot go to market and compete with standard products in Minnesota and build a glass factory out in the suburbs and focus on cost, price, and maximizing my throughput. Mm-hmm. He just knew intuitively that is not going to work in our market. He also had a human interest in that he realized, look, there is this community where there are a bunch of artists who right. are the sort of people who could make a different contribution. Can I get a way to harness that? And also to run it as a serious business. I mean, he's very serious about his business. Mm-hmm. The other aspect is he's an artist, but he cut and laid off people when he had to. He started up little ventures like, um, you know, experimentally, like the cafe that was successful. But he had to fairly brutally shut that down right. when the market made it clear that that was not going to work. So it's it's a it's a really nice illustration that. You know, the aesthetic, artistic side and the business side can work together if you're smart enough. 
Yeah. And if you're determined enough. You're so right. Thank you for the motivation and for the insights, as always. John McVeigh, University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all of our past episodes and all contain more great insights from professors from the University of St. Thomas. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. By all means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means.